Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. The cunting Film Flamers. <laughs> that soon? We're just jumping we just right had to get it. it in first. That's right. I mean, it's the word of the day. Lick me! <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't guessed by now, we are here to bring you a deep dive into The Exorcist. That's right. The Exorcist is a 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin and written for the screen by William Peter Blatty based on his 1971 novel of the same name. It's the first installment in the Exorcist franchise and should be the first and last. And the story follows the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempts to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by two Catholic priests. Okay, but you say first and last, but you haven't seen The Exorcist 3 yet, so save that for The Exorcist have 3 Have you seen episode. both of those prequels? I have. Oh my god, both? Yes, I own them both. Oh Jesus. I know. I have The Exorcist franchise in its entirety for some reason. The returning and the preamble or whatever they're called? Something like that. <laughs> Dominioning? I don't know. <laughs> what I do know is that this Exorcist stars Ellen Bernstein, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Kitty Wynn, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. With little faith behind the movie, it received a very small release, but audiences flocked to see it and is now considered to be one of the scariest and best horror movies ever made. The cultural conversation around the film and its treatment of Catholicism helped make it the first horror movie ever nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. The film features the song Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, and it serves as the film's theme. There have been several versions of the original film release, most notably the version you've never seen in 2000, but we'll be discussing the original theatrical release for this deep dive. As I think everyone should. Yes. Okay, listeners. Do you know what she did? Your cunting daughter? This is The Exorcist. Lick me! <laughs> Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Mother? What's wrong with me? The whole... Beth was rising up the floor and shaking. You have any religious beliefs? You ever heard of exorcism? I'm only against the possibility of doing your daughter more harm than good. Nothing you can do could make it any worse. I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism. Not one. Do it again. In time. No, now. In time. Eighty-eight doctors, and all you can tell me is you're sorry. Your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing upstairs isn't my daughter.
Father Marin, played by Max von Sydow, a veteran Catholic priest, is on an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq. Alerted by a colleague, he finds a sculpture that resembles Pazuzu, a demon of ancient origins with whose history Marin is familiar. Soon afterwards, after taking heart medication, Marin encounters a statue towering over him in the image of Pazuzu, an omen warning him of a looming confrontation. Dun, dun, dun. He comes face to head with a demon snake penis. There's <laughs> a big snake penis, too. Meanwhile, in Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Bernston, is living on location with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair. She's starring in a film directed by her friend and associate, Burke Dennings. During this time, small oddities begin to occur around the house, such as scratching from the attic without a source. After playing with a Ouija board and contacting a supposedly imaginary friend whom she calls Captain Howdy, Reagan begins acting strangely, using obscene language, and exhibiting abnormal strength. Additionally, there's poltergeist-like activity at the home at night. Chris hosts a party during which Reagan comes downstairs unannounced, tells one of the guests, an astronaut, that he'll die up there, and then proceeds to urinate on the floor. Later that night, Reagan's bed begins to shake and levitate violently. Chris consults a number of physicians, putting Reagan through a battery of diagnostic tests, but the doctors find nothing physiologically wrong with her. One night, when Chris is out, Berg Dennings is babysitting a heavily sedated Reagan. Chris returns later that night to hear that Dennings has died, having fallen out of the window to his death onto the steps of doom below. (laughs) Although this is assumed to have been an accident given Burke's history of heavy drinking, his death is investigated by Lieutenant William Kinderman, played by Lee J. Cobb. Kinderman interviews Chris. He also consults psychiatrist father Daniel Karras, played by Jason Miller. It's all for you, Jason. It's all for you a Jesuit priest struggling with his faith. Karras' crisis of faith is precipitated by the death of his mother, which he blames on himself. Why you do this to me, Demi? (laughs) The doctors, believing that Reagan's aberrations are mostly psychological in origin, recommend an exorcism be performed, citing its effectiveness on patients who believe themselves to be possessed, thanks to the placebo effect. Chris arranges a meeting with Karis, who, reluctant to engage spiritually, agrees to at least speak with Reagan. As the two come face to face, Karis and Reagan test each other's wits, although Karis is skeptical of the idea that anything supernatural is happening. Chris tearfully finds herself at a dead end and confides in Karis that Reagan was the one who murdered Dennings and begs him to find a solution. Over the next couple of days, Karis witnesses Reagan speaking backwards in different languages she doesn't know, and the phrase, help me, appears to be carved from the inside of her stomach, convincing him she really is possessed by a demon. He implores the church to let her perform an exorcism, but feeling that Karis is outmatched, the church calls on Marin to perform the exorcism while allowing Karis to assist. The ritual begins as a battle of wills, with Reagan performing a series of horrific and vulgar acts. They attempt to exorcise the demon, but the spirit digs in, claiming to be the devil himself. The spirit relentlessly toys with the priest and zeroes in on Karis, sensing his guilt from the passing of his mother. Karis weakens after the demon impersonates his late mother and is excused by Marin, who continues the exorcism alone. Once he has gathered his strength, Karis re-enters the room only to discover that Marin has died of a heart attack. 
After he fails to revive Marin, the enraged Karis grabs a laughing Regan and wrestles her to the ground. Fed up and wanting to live deliciously, Karis implores the demon to possess him instead of Regan. The demon leaves Regan's body and takes hold of Karis. Now possessed by Regan's evil demon, the weight of the extra rib unbalances him and he flies out the window landing on the steps of doom and defeating the demon at last. Father Dyer, a friend of Karis, happens upon the scene and administers the last rites to Karis. A few days later, Regan, now back to her normal self, prepares to leave for Los Angeles with her mother. Although Regan has no apparent recollection of her possession, she is moved by the sight of Father Dyer and kisses him on the cheek. As the car pulls away, Chris tells the driver to stop and she gives Father Dyer a medallion that belonged to Karis. After they drive off, Dyer pauses at the top of the steps of doom to give Reagan's window one last look and then turns to walk away. The end? No. <laughs> and we're doomed for the and sequel. it's not the beginning either. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the beginning? <laughs> no, clearly not. The Exorcist was released in 24 theaters on December 23, 1973, in mostly large cities. Warner Brothers did not expect the film to perform well, so the film was not screened for critics before its release. However, it was a surprise hit with audiences, who lined blocks waiting for a chance to see it. It grossed $1.9 million its first week, setting records for each theater in which it was shown. Well, it was a Christmas movie. Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> I really need to add it to my Christmas list from now on. Mm-hmm. Despite initial mixed critical reviews, audiences, like you just said, flocked to it, waiting on long lines during winter weather, and many doing so more than once. Some viewers suffered adverse physical reactions, fainting or vomiting to scenes in which the protagonist undergoes realistic cerebral angiography and later uh, violently masturbates with a crucifix. Heart attacks and even a miscarriage were reported. Oh my god. A psychiatric journal published a paper on cinematic neurosis triggered by the film. Many children were allowed to see the film, leading to charges that the MPAA ratings board had accommodated Warner Brothers by giving the film an R rating instead of an X rating they thought it deserved in order to ensure its commercial success. Several cities attempted to ban it outright or prevent children from attending, which they should have been for R rated, right? Yeah. Or maybe that's actually what they changed. Well, I think like... In, in these days, in the early 70s, like there was the R rating and the X rating. So movies like Midnight Cowboy received an X rating, meaning yeah. that children could not come in. But parents could take their kids to see an R-rated film. So Okay. But uh, I believe we also talked about uh, cinematic neurosis on the podcast before for other movies, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, this is a thing. So Yeah. Uh, This popularity quickly forced the studio to re-release the film in 1974, and during this period, The Exorcist would gross a worldwide total of $112 million and became Warner Brothers' most successful film. By 2019, after several reissues, the film had earned more than $440 million against a reported budget of $12 million. And I've heard that based on, you know, if you adjust it for inflation, it's the highest rated or the the most successful, like monetarily, financially speaking, R-rated film of all time. That's right. I mean, for a long time, The Exorcist held records about being one of the most successful R-rated movies, at least one of the most successful horror movies, until It Chapter One came along and sort of shattered that. Okay. 
So The Exorcist currently sits at 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 87%, so even keel. The site's consensus reads, The Exorcist rides its supernatural theme to magical effect with remarkable special effects and an eerie atmosphere resulting in one of the scariest films of all time. Mm Mm-hmm. Stanley Kaufman of The New Republic wrote, This is the scariest film I've seen in years. The only scary film I've seen in years. Well, if you want to be shaken and I found out while the picture was going on, that's what I wanted, then The Exorcist will scare the hell out of you. Roger Ebert gave the film four stars and praised the actors and the special effects. But at the end of his review, he wrote, I'm not sure exactly what reasons people will have for seeing this movie. Surely enjoyment won't be one. Because what we get here are not the delicious chills of a Vincent Price thriller, but raw and painful experience. Are people so numb that they need movies of this intensity to feel anything at all? He also added that it received the R rating and not the X is stupefying. In the New York Times, Vincent Canby dismissed the movie as a chunk of elegant occultist claptrap. <laughs> a practically impossible film to sit through. It establishes a new low for special effects. Wow. John Landau felt the film was nothing more than a religious porn film, the gaudiest piece of schlock this side of Cecil B. DeMille film, minus that gentleman's wit and ability to tell a story. Well, well, John. To live in a time when a Cecil B. DeMille film was seen as claptrap. I know. I mean, like, that's why I was not going to put that in there. And I was just like, mm. and a trip to the theater was like the uh, trip to the art gallery. I don't know. What the fuck? Claptrap. Claptrap. As we said before, The Exorcist was the first horror movie ever nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but it was also nominated for Best Director, Best Actress for Ellen Bernstein, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress for Linda Blair, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing. Now, there is some controversy about that, uh, multiple points. Uh, some people would say that is not really the first horror movie to be nominated. I'm, don't, I'm not sure which ones that would be. Uh, and of course, there's some controversy about the Best Supporting Actress, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay. All right. But at the Academy Awards, it won two. So it won Best, Adapt- uh, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. Well-deserved. Agreed. Yeah. At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor for Max von Sydow, and uh, Most Promising Newcomer for Linda Blair. It won Best Motion Picture for Drama and Best Supporting Actress and Best Director and Best Screenplay. Yeah, so the Golden Globes was showering it, but um, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be talking about the Golden Globes anymore, so no. I guess time will tell. No. What are they? What Globes, you say? No. Are they golden or tarnished? <laughs> golden showers. <laughs> My Globes are tarnished. <laughs> the Exorcist was ranked number three on AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills list and number nine on 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains. In 2010, the Library of Congress selected the film to be preserved in its National Film Registry, citing it as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Yes, I love those deep dives. Me too. Always makes me happy. One reviewer wrote, and many others also echoed, that The Exorcist has done for the horror film what 2001 A Space Odyssey did for science fiction, legitimizing horror for film goers who had only ever thought of the horror genre as a giggle. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm I, in a giggle. I would say that the movies came before this that sort of legitimized it, right? But I'm sure that's part of the controversy. You know what I mean? I just yeah. think that this is probably like super scary and also was a well-made film that mm-hmm. people will spend a lot of money on. Yeah. A sequel to the film was released in 1977, and a third film debuted in 1990, 
Two prequels to the original were released in 2004 and 2005. Well, let's talk a little bit of the cast. Normally, we try and kind of skip over that and get through, uh, you know, mentioning the cast when we kind of organically talk about a film. But I feel like we need to talk about the cast very specifically and intentionally here. I think so as well, because the cast is great in this movie. I think that almost every piece of acting in this is just phenomenal. I think it was very well cast. And what's phenomenal about that is because they went through so many people before a lot of these people, the main roles really specifically, were ever really cast finally. Really? Yeah. So Ellen Bernstein, for example, who was perfectly cast as Chris McNeil as some sort of like well-known actress, which I kind of assumed she was at the time. Right. We certainly know her now, especially her wild turn in Requiem for a Dream. And some people knew her in newer films like uh, Interstellar at the end of it, you know, and things like that. But originally the studio wanted Audrey Hepburn, but she wanted it filmed in Rome. So they were basically like, well, that'll double or triple the budget for this film. So we're not going to do that. And then Anne Bancroft was next, but wanted the production to be delayed nine months because she had just gotten pregnant. Oh, and then Jane Fonda was approached, but turned it down as a piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit. This is Jane Fonda in the 70s, right? But post Barbarella or whatever the fuck she was in. So. I, I mean, like she at the time she was making movies like Clute and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I don't I don't know why she would call this movie a piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit. But, but. pre Golden Pond. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, and then Shirley MacLaine, but she had already been in a possession movie two years before that uh, called The Possession of Joel Delaney. I haven't even heard of that movie. Yeah. I've got to go back and see what that was. But Ellen Bernstein ultimately got the part when she explained to Friedkin that she was, quote unquote, destined to get the role. So I can see that. I think that Ellen Bernstein really is stellar in this movie. She's interstellar in this movie, if you will. (laughs) And I just, I mean, I love every time that she's on screen. I think that she's a phenomenal actress, you know, and I think sometimes if you hear Friedkin talk, like he, he brings these performances out of the actors, you know what I mean? And various ways that may or may not be, you know, kosher to everybody, but. Oh, well, definitely be deep diving into that a little bit later. <laughs> I mean, he's a hardcore director. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think Ellen Bernstein is great. And I, I like her when I see her in other movies, right? We've already talked about Requiem for a Dream, which is probably famously one of the only movies that I will ever watch just one time. I just don't want to watch that movie again. Oh, yeah. Um, but she's great in that. And I think she was nominated, if not won an Academy Award for that movie. Mm. Um, she's also been in like the last picture show, you know, from the seventies, like she, she's an excellent actress. And I I think that she was relatively unknown when this came out, but an excellent choice to play Chris McNeil. So Jason Miller, also a relative unknown who had never been in a movie before, only stage plays, mm-hmm. of course, as a uh, father or doctor, psychiatrist, uh, Karis, right? And uh, originally Jack Nicholson was what they wanted for the role. Oh, God. Well, he went on to do The Shining, so. Yeah. That could have changed his career trajectory by far. I just can't see him as like a priest questioning his faith. You know what I mean? Like he already, he looks like he would be possessed by the fucking devil. Well, I he mean. did. <laughs> and he does in The Shining. <laughs> so, well, ultimately, uh, Jason had been contacted by Friedgen because he, he witnessed his play that involved a, like lapsed Catholicism. And he wanted his perspective, like his psychological perspective, having played that role on stage okay. so many times. Right. And so uh, he actually gave him the book to read and after reading it he campaigned he actively called freaking and campaigned for the role saying that it was made for him wow so that's two actors who are already saying they're destined to like play parts yeah right mm-hmm. and even Bristol was like oh, he's too short you know and then they ultimately did screen tests and they were like this guy has a screen presence that no one was even aware of 
I mean, he really does, though. Mm-hmm. He's, like, captivating to look at in this movie. And yeah, and people don't look like that in real life. But once you put, like, Rembrandt lighting on people, mm-hmm. if you know what that is in film, like, it's, it's you know, one part of your face is in shadow and the other part is, like, soft lit to where you get the triangle on the cheek or whatever okay. of light. Like the Rembrandt paintings, right? Yeah. And so this guy is famously beautiful in Rembrandt lighting, right? And this this movie is filled with it. Uh, I think he was actually also a, a playwright in his own right. So, I mean, yeah. like, yeah, he did a lot of, like, a lot of theater work. Um, and, I mean, I don't remember Jason Miller being in a lot of things after The Exorcist, although he does pop up in The Exorcist 3. He does, yeah. yeah. And then finally, Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil. Obviously, this is, like, the hardest role to fill because... I mean, even the like Mike Nichols was up for directing first on okay. this film and decided to pass on it really because he didn't think anyone could realistically play the the role of this girl, right? And I mean, it was a question of whether or not a, a young actress, even a really talented one, could could carry a whole film on their shoulders. You know, and that was an issue from the beginning. And also there was a concern like even if they did find someone, like, the psychological stress of that role would be too much for a child. Right. So they started looking for a little bit older actresses and, and things like that. But ultimately, they, they actually found Linda Blair because her and her mother just walked in unannounced into the casting office because they had heard about the project. Like her uh, her studio or modeling agency or whatever uh-huh. hadn't even reached out to them. They just like walked in and said, we want to do this. And so um, she demonstrated the personal qualities that Friedman was looking for and then went on to see whether she could handle the material. And he asked her if she knew what The Exorcist was about. And she told him she had read the book and said, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. And then Friedman asked her what sort of bad things she meant. And she said, she pushes a man out of her bedroom window and she hits her mother across the face and she masturbates with a crucifix. Oh my god. Friedkin then asked Linda if she knew what masturbation meant and she said, it's like jerking off, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and then he asked her if she'd ever done that. Weirdly. Because that seems so... I can believe it. Seeing Friedkin interviews, I can totally believe that, that he would ask her that. And she said, sure, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, listen, if you can see my face right now, I have never heard of something so unprofessional as to ask a little girl if she's masturbated. Well, she answered that really, really quickly. And so she was basically hired on the spot. Yeah. I mean, well, that's good. You know, and I, I you're right. I could totally see William Friedkin asking that question of a child. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. So Linda Blair. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we can take a moment to talk about Linda Blair. Sure. This moment. I think that by and largely, this is her best role. Right. Oh, well, easily. I mean, she went on to make a, a role of a lifetime. Yeah. She went on to make a whole bunch of trash after this, like quite honestly. Right. I mean, I like roller boogie as next, as much as the next person, you I know, like scream. Yeah. I mean, she had that profound role in scream as an obnoxious reporter. You're right. <laughs> I, th- I really wanted her, her to be cast in like scream too, as the mother of Billy Loomis or whatever. And like, you could go back and look at her, you know, cause that, that character is a reporter. Yeah, but I'm trying to like imagine that movie without Laurie Metcalf. You know, no, and I it's know, like I love I Laurie know. Metcalf. She's a national treasure. But yeah, I mean, like Linda Blair has made some of the worst, most fun movies I've ever seen. You know what I mean? It's like that she she left The Exorcist and she was like, "Y'all yeah, make that, I'll make that, I'll make that." You know what I mean? And I mean, it's just she's like a low budget queen, you yeah. know. But the movies are so much fun and so enjoyable. And I I like Linda Blair when I see her in things, you know. But I mean, I think that you like you said it's a role of a lifetime, and this is what she'll always 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 be remembered yeah. for. You know, sure. There's just no way around it. Yeah, she didn't Sigourney her weaver out of that. That's <laughs> no, she did not. <laughs> oh, everyone, go watch Roller Boogie. 
<laughs> well, then we get on to Max von uh, Sido. Some people say Sido. I'm not sure what's correct. As Father Marin, uh, which the studio actually wanted Marlon Brando for. What? <laughs> but they were too afraid that it would become a Marlon Brando film. Right? Of course, I mean, they didn't would. want any actor. So you know, it's all these like unknown actors that make these movies bigger than the some other parts. Yeah, and I think that Max von Sydow has like played um, like both the devil and the and and God in movies too, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, he's no stranger to film. I think he was kind of a stranger to American audiences. Maybe I don't know. I mean, again, like I feel like I feel like he brought a lot of prestige to this. Like he's the prestige actor, right? Mm-hmm. The foreign actor, and he's not in the movie a lot except for the very beginning, the very end. But again, a real captivating performance from him. Oh, definitely. And something about his performance is very, very standout um, that I noticed knowing that he was in Game of Thrones like 50 years later, you know, and looking like the same age, you know. So we're going to talk about a little bit about that later, too. But let's just talk about let's. I mean, there's a lot of other people in this cat in this cast that are really, yeah. really well done, but not as notable as those. I would say, especially Correct. certainly not as storied, and some of them pop up, you know, here and there in the in the franchise later on as well. Notably, uh, Kitty Wynn as Sharon Spencer, which is kind of like the the house helper, I yeah, guess, like an like assistant the, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So anyway, but let's talk about the movie. Let's walk our way through this split pea soup. Let's starting with. The Omen. And I assume by that you're talking about uh, Father Marin's time in Iraq. Yeah, the, the opener, right? And mm-hmm. it's he does come face to you know face to head with the snake penis of Pazuzu, <laughs> which is the omen, and then we like get that like uh, whiplash transition to Georgetown. I have to believe, and I, I you and I have both seen the movie um, you know, William Freakin on The Exorcist, right? Yeah. Leap of Faith is what it's called. Yep. I think it's an excellent documentary. And I know that he explains at length how every fucking thing in this movie means something, right? And I think that that's probably most obvious in the opening to this movie. I think that every single shot, everything that happens. Except that he goes on to say, like, well, that was a really cool shot of the of this hallway where he walks down. So we just, like, it was on the way to set, so we just filmed it. And so I'm like, <laughs> he kind of talks himself up and then he, like, explains things to where they're not quite as maybe an in a hyperbolic, you know, as yeah. he describes himself well i think he thinks very highly of himself is what i think agreed i mean and obviously i think he's also a very hyperbolic director yeah right and i'm sure that we'll talk about friedkin at some point you know in this conversation um the things that strike me about this is that like father marin clearly has a heart problem right i mean Mm -hmm. we get that and he seems to be in the loudest fucking city on earth you know what i mean like everywhere he turns Mm -hmm. is like people like shrieking or talking or hammering Mm -hmm. and i'm like i just forgot until this rewatch, like how fucking loud the beginning of this movie is until it gets real quiet. You know what I mean? Until the clock stops, you know, there's almost always noise going on. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy these scenes. All of Iraq was a buzz. (laughs) All of Iraq was a buzz with father Baron, you know, but it seems like a really odd place to start this movie. Um, Especially because like, they don't even call it Pazuzu. Right. Except that I feel like a lot of horror movies that have to do with this sort of thing kind of start similarly. Yeah. You know, or something where there's like, you know, and anything like you could even go back earlier than this and think of like The Mummy or something like that that kind of has backflashes, you know, into history or something like that or some archaeological find or something like that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's true. I mean, it is. And it, it, it does set up the character a lot. You know, it sets up a character that we don't see until the end of the movie. Yeah, you know? essentially, yeah. Yeah. So, although you could say it sets up a character that you see almost immediately. I guess that's true. Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And uh, we start meeting, uh, once we're in Georgetown, we meet Chris, we meet Reagan, we meet Captain Howdy. Um, Captain Howdy. <laughs> yeah. So like we said before in the synopsis, Chris McNeil is making a movie, right? She's a really well-to-do, well-known actress, right? Mm-hmm. Living in Georgetown with her daughter. And her daughter is sort of left at home with the you know housekeeper or whatever. And yep. she finds the fucking Ouija board. Yep. And things start going strange. It doesn't really lean into that at all. It just kind of very casually kind of incidentally mentions that she was playing with it, you know, and it's kind of a throwaway conversation, you mm-hmm. know, but obviously this has been going on for, I don't know, a couple of days or weeks. We don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. You know, and we, we can piece together at least in this movie on an Island away from the other movies, you know, that this is what kind of invited the spirit in. I would say so. I mean, because like, you know, some of the things that we talk about or we're going to be talking about soon, right, are happening, you know, before we even get to see the Ouija board, you know? Yeah. Like there's something going on in this house. And so I think that we are led to believe that she has been sort of communicating with the spirit for a while. Right. And to me, it's like the scariest moment of this entire film for me, at least on my first watch, it was not less so this time when she's walking around the attic and the torch, you know, the candle that she's holding kind of goes up like a torch. And then instantly you see, oh, maybe it's the guy opening the door to the attic or coming up and there's a wind thing that you know whatever it could be anything right? but I, I jumped out of my skin the first time i watched this movie in that scene and, and everything else wasn't quite as scary as, as that moment at least jump scare i jump at that moment every single time i watch this movie <laughs> because i always forget about it you yeah. know like everyone remembers the big pieces of this movie and i forget about the time she's walking around in the attic with the big flame and so yeah. this time i literally screamed out loud <laughs> I was just like, right along with ellen <laughs> <You know? laughs> It fucking terrifies me. Yeah, well, she was probably shot in the foot by Friedgen or something. <laughs> it was probably a real flame. And they're like, gas. You know? <laughs> we'll get a scream out of her. Take 75. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, so that's part of the buildup, right? And so uh, we get the big party, and that's kind of a reveal that there's something going on with Reagan. You know, we kind of already know that something's going. She's she's not feeling well. She's like kind of bedridden a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. she comes down the stairs and says like to the astronaut at the party that he's going to die up there, and she pisses on the floor. Yep, she takes a big old pee right there on the carpet. <laughs> and we get the shaking bed. We get the obscenities. We get you know, we, you know, we're asked to let Jesus fuck us and. <laughs> <laughs> Lick it. Lick me. (laughs) Yeah. And this is some of the the most disturbing parts of the whole film, right? Because it's the mother. We're seeing kind of through the mother's eyes what's going on with her daughter. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. I think like the the buildup to the actual exorcism, right, is really just frightening, right, for multiple, multiple reasons. Well, yeah, because they set up the innocence. It kind of reminds me of Poltergeist, right? They set up the innocence of this family, of this of this little girl, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden there's this huge, sharp contrast of this majorly adult, mature content coming out of her mouth and her body. That's right. And um, I mean, and we, we get to see a lot of that innocence with her interactions with her mom, including when they're playing with the Ouija board together and her mm-hmm. making like little, you know, clay animals and stuff like that. She really is a child. And then like it's seemingly overnight, you know, mm-hmm. she's letting Jesus fuck her. Although she is making little trinkets of Pazuzu or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Just, she's got some questionable drawings or something. I, I mean, like. Um, and she does say at one point, this a cunt? I'll put it on the fridge. <laughs> I know. Do you know what I drew? Your cunting daughter? Um, 
She even tells her mom at one point, her mom wakes up and she's in bed and she's like, what are you doing in here? And she's like, my bed was shaking or whatever. You know what I mean? So like things are happening. And all of that's entertaining. But then shit gets real, right? When yeah. Burke dies. And he was a, a drunk, goofy looking motherfucker in this movie. <laughs> and it's off screen, right? Which I always was kind of confused with. But I think it's just because it wants to throw the audience off. Did she or didn't she? Did she? Is she actually possessed or is she not? You know, did she kill him or did she not? Was he just a drunk buffoon, which he was earlier in the movie? Yeah. You know, starting a fight at that party and and being drunk and leaving and and them being concerned for his safety and everything else. But uh, apparently he died and, and you know, fell to his death on those steps of doom. <laughs> did it really? I mean, has this movie ever thrown you off on that regard, though? Um, I think it's trying to be a little bit ambiguous at first it's yeah. just kind of toying with you just flirting with you just you know it's just a little over the sweater action a little light breathing into the ear yeah yeah something <laughs> let jesus fuck you that kind of thing let jesus grope you that's where we're at that kind of over the sweater action my bad yeah i'm not used to that um but obviously this this transitions into the mother being like okay i need to do something this this is serious she witnesses the bed shaking and levitating and like and the doctor's like oh well she just had muscle spasms she's like fuck that and so they do all the tests oh my god and that's actually one of the most controversial parts of this film is that test that they show it's really Mm -hmm. like off-putting it is you know, like I don't, I don't see, like it. It looks really realistic, and it sees like the blood spurting through the tube. Right, and she looks really uncomfortable. I mean, almost yeah. to the point, like, are they actually doing this yeah. to this girl? You actually wonder. And I'm, I'm like, sure, audiences in the '70s thought that it was really happening. I, I mean, I, it looks real now. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I know nothing about medical technology, but my God, medical technology in the '70s is fucking frightening. I mean, well, Matt was like, oh my God, this is a really old way to do that, and he was like, there must be doing some sort of angiogram, and well, they we were doing it. So. Wow. So, yeah. Look at your husband. Mm-hmm. Learned. Uh, but yeah, through all these like a barrage of tests and how, no matter how many doctors she says, like 75 fucking doctors or whatever. And <laughs> like eventually they suggest that she get an exorcist. They're like, why don't you get a priest? And she's like, excuse me. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, it's the uh, it's the psychological effect of, a, of an exorcism. If they th- really think that they're possessed, it, you know, it's the placebo effect of getting that exorcism and getting it out of the system, psychologically speaking. And it's like exposure therapy. True, I guess. But I kind of feel like, and this is just my own personal opinion, mm-hmm. right? That performing an exorcism on somebody who's that mentally, you know, unstable, I think it would make it worse. Oh, you know what I mean? well, yes. So it's just it's my opinion. But this is the dark ages. This is the seventies, you know, back when you were born. But, um, you know, when she, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> my God. <laughs> well, 79. But from this recommendation by these doctors, uh, she goes to seek out the help of Father Karras. Yeah, she does. Who is a psychiatric priest. Who is having a crisis of faith himself because of the recent death of his mother. That's Which right. we already discussed in the synopsis. So we, you know, we don't want to do this to you, Demi. I mean, it is heartbreaking, the moments with his mom. Yeah, yeah, and spooky. And like some of the most disturbing, like spooky, creepy stuff in the whole movie was when he's like envisioning his mother, blaming him for his death. Or why you do this to me, Demi? And, you know. Or that moment where he's having that dream and his mom yeah. sort of walks up the subway stairs and then turns around and walks right down. But he right can't hear down. her. Yeah. But he can hear everything else in the around world. Him. It's like such a great scene. So cinema. I mean, I won't say that I have, you know the level of boner for Friedkin that I do for like De Palma, right? Sure. But it's real close. Yeah. There's some start and stops with, with Friedkin. Yeah. Certainly. Like a gun. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, he comes in and he, he, he really tries to approach it from a psychiatry perspective, you know, just like the others, but quickly, uh, you know, discovers that, you know, at first there's kind of like a, a red herring, right? Cause he, he puts the, like the holy water on her, yeah. even though it's not real holy water, exactly. but it burns her as though it was. And so there's always that kind of question when I watch this movie, I'm like, is it because he's a priest? Is there some sort of mechanism that it doesn't matter if it's holy water or not? Is it because of the intention? I don't know. That's a good question. I've never really thought about that. You know what I mean? I sort of just took that at face value of him just trying to say, like, we can't just have an exorcism. You know, the church has to approve it, first of all, and there has to be a series of, you know, explanation. Or maybe he accidentally bought a kosher water bottle. I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I I don't know. And so, like, he has a whole, like, tete-a-tete with Reagan, right? And they, they talk and... And she starts – it seems like she knows the things that she's supposed to do in order to get an exorcism. I mean, like, she speaks in languages, right? And she, the holy water, like you said. And he records all this, right? And, you know, he takes it to, you know, a, an associate, I guess, of his. And he was like, what language is he speaking? And he's like, English. It's just backward yeah, or whatever. That was right? a cool reveal. Yeah. Which is also creepy, too. So. Yeah. So he kind of realizes and he goes to the church. And, you know, he's basically saying, this girl needs this. Yeah. You know, and they're like, okay, well – the fuck you say? Bazuzu, what? And so they call Marin, right? <laughs> because he has experience with exorcisms, right? Somewhere in Africa, is Except it? Except that they, they even put a lantern on the fact that he's old and he's yeah. like, he probably doesn't have the strength to do this. And yet they, they put two of these people that shouldn't really be doing this in the same room together. Well, that's the church for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Catholic. Inappropriately putting men of various ages in the same room together. <laughs> <laughs> Famously, um, I have to say before we go on that Father Dyer in this movie gives me such queer vibes. You know what I mean? Like he just seems like the gayest priest of all time. He's sitting at the piano, like playing show tunes. And he's like, my idea of heaven is a nightclub and I'm the star and everyone loves me. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, he's an actual priest. Is he really? Yes. Oh, I did not. He's know a that. priest and an author and an actor. Oh, and a gay man. I don't know. I guess he'll never well, tell. Well, he's in the priesthood. He's Catholic, so yes. <laughs> Our apologies. <laughs> I don't know if we're not offending everybody right now. <laughs> we always do. But facts are facts. Perdition. <laughs> facts are facts, America. <laughs> yeah. Counting priest. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> we have crossed the line. <laughs> just kidding. Well, no, we, we have just all of them. <laughs> we have just gone off topic. <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, Father Marin is alerted to the fact that um, there's an, you know, an exorcism that needs to be performed and he shows up in Georgetown. Famously in a poster. That's right. Underneath a light Mm -hmm. with a light shining from a window. Yeah. I do love that, though. It was the first day of filming for him. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Look at you, Friedkin. So, yeah. And then we get an exorcism. Do we, though? I mean, I feel like it's really half-assed. Well, I don't know what an actual exorcism looks like. So, well, you're supposed to do it. You know what I mean? And like they're they're doing it in starts and stops and fits and spurts. And <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's it's obvious like they're not having much of an effect on this thing. You know, like it's it's like just toying with them. It's talking with them. It's it's obviously you know kind of having its filthy way with them. Well, yeah. Way. I mean, they're going through the motions, but you have to. I mean, like it definitely gets to Karis impersonating 
you know, different things, including his mother. Oh, yeah. You know, and this there's a whole split piece soup thing and <laughs> with his barfing on his face. And he, he he obviously gets to him. Marin tells him to leave. And then he comes back in and Marin's dead. So it's like the whole it's just really just trying to use Marin as a device to, to kind of say, OK, we're tying this to this other area. We're tying this to this guy's research. We're tying to this to like an aged, you know, kind of professorial academic in the you know catholic priesthood and then we're gonna you know bring him out like he's this sort of big gun you know and then he's dead so it's just making it raising the stakes and making it even more important to the audience yes and i completely agree because he's a walking tool yeah because he he doesn't have he's not at all questioning his faith like father Marin is Father Marin, right? He's a priest by and largely, right? And I mean, yeah, if anything, it's like two sides of a different, of the same coin, right? Yes, it's exactly. like one is like not as having a crisis of faith, and the other one is almost too reverential for this thing. Yeah, it's like two sides of a St. Christopher medallion. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But yeah, I mean, like the demon clearly knows which priest to go after, which one it can get to the easiest, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, it has... For the other one, it just has a sneeze at him and he has a heart attack. <laughs> it has some machinations of its own. I'm not quite sure that it goes the way that it wants to, but mm. it's what happens. Ultimately, unlike what we said in the synopsis, Karis self-sacrifices. Yes. You know, but it ends kind of abruptly to me, right? I mean, he he invites the thing into him and then he kills himself to me... I guess they're saying the act of sacrifice is what saved Reagan. But to me, it's a spirit. It could literally just, oh, well, well, it just killed. It just killed Karis. It could just float back up into that goddamn window. You know what I mean? It's too easy for me. Hence I mean, the sequels. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I I can sort of like understand your your take on that, you know. But I mean, I, I really like the idea of self-sacrifice in this particular situation, mm-hmm. right? The fact that he died the same way that Burke dies in the movie, essentially. If right? only I had some steps of doom handy that I could throw myself onto. I mean, it's just a really easy renovation you could do here in this house. <laughs> we could use it for many reasons. We have the steps of doom. <laughs> it's just a matter of time before <laughs> you break your goddamn neck. Because I'm clumsy as fuck. Uh, so... Um, I have a lot of like personal connections to the exorcist and I'm going to give you one right mm-hmm. now. So mm-hmm. on Halloween, several years ago, I got to cross an item off my bucket list and that is visit the actual exorcist steps in DC. And I walked up and down them. Yes. And there are pictures, but I did not fall down and die. And you should share those on Instagram with this episode. That's right. I should. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, father Dyer shows up and is able to give him the last rights, you okay. know, as his friend. Uh, there's also a Friedkin moment there, by the way. Wow. <laughs> you didn't know about it. We'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, and then the ending, everything's kind of back to normal, or is it? And then, you know, um, I, I really like that that kind of sense memory or whatever that Reagan has. She doesn't really remember anything, but she recognizes uh, Father Dyer as, she's, as they're leaving D.C. and going back to L.A., I guess. Um, Georgetown, whatever. And recognizes that he's a priest and kind of is overcome with a sense of connection and kisses him on the cheek and gets in the car. She doesn't know why. Yeah. She stares for a long time at that clerical collar. Right? It's a pretty cool moment of visual storytelling though. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, cause she, she's reluctant at first, but she feels so strongly as to give him a kiss. Right. But uh, not only that, but as they're leaving, uh, Chris stops and gives father Dyer, uh, father Karis's medallion. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. So that's the ending to the theatrical release. As we talked about earlier in the episode, there have been many versions of this movie release, most famously, like we said, the version you've never seen. And um, they changed the ending. So um, 
After Father Dyer receives that St. Christopher medallion, he walks back over to the Steps of Doom where Lieutenant Kinderman shows up and they sort of like bond for a moment over their mutual appreciation of Karis and they form a very long friendship, which is basically what Exorcist 3 starts with. Okay, interesting. So so obviously this movie has a large and storied background. That's right. I mean, it is by far some people's like most favorite horror movie. And it's certainly very popular. So I'm sure that there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Well, obviously it was a book. Yes. You know, written by Blatty, who we mentioned before. Uh, but uh, uh, the aspects of the, the novel were actually inspired by a 1949 exorcism performed on an anonymous young boy known as Rolando. Or Robbie Mannheim, depending on you know their pseudonyms, depending on the story, uh, by the Jesuit priest uh, Friar William Bodern, and Doe's family became convinced that the boy's aggressive behavior was attributable to demonic possession, and called upon the services of several Catholic priests, including Bodern, to perform the rite of, ex- of exorcism. And I'm wondering if this is a slight you know call to Conjuring Three, but I think that actually has to do with a crime or murder that happened. Yes, in Conjuring 3, that is. yeah. Versus um, the Roland Doe did not involve a murder, I don't think. No. Well, that's about the background of the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but obviously this was uh, – it was a popular book. And yeah. It was a bestseller. And it was shopped – you know, it was bought by the studio for the rights and it was shopped to multiple directors. Uh, the studio actually, Warner Brothers, uh, approached um, Arthur Penn, Stanley Kubrick, and Mike Nichols, as we mentioned before. Uh, to direct and all of whom turned it down. Mike Nichols previously mentioned because he didn't think anyone could play that role. And originally Mike Rydell was actually hired, but William Peter Blatty, the author insisted on Friedkin as he had met Friedkin years before and preferred him as a director and ultimately got his way after a standoff. Principal photography started on August 21st in 1972 and the shooting schedule was estimated to run 105 days, but ultimately ran well over 200, (laughs) probably 300 if it had been Kubrick. (laughs) I will say something about the book. Um, Like you said, it was super popular. It was on the bestseller list for a very long time. And I've read or heard some places that like the idea of an exorcism was not quite in like the common lexicon. Like people didn't talk about that sort of thing. You know what I mean? And most people didn't even know it existed. Really? Well, there had been a movie two years previous with Shirley Shirley MacLaine, apparently. About a possession. You know what I mean? But it wasn't it wasn't just like normal pop culture kind of talk, right? Not until the book came out and then certainly not until the movie came out for sure. Sure. So obviously Friedkin won the role and Blatty got his way, but we need to talk about the abuses. The abuses of Friedkin? The abuses of Friedkin. Because they are legion. A whole movie could be, because they are legion. We are legion. (laughs) Yeah. And so he would go to extraordinary lengths famously uh, to manipulate the actors and get the the jolts and and the reactions that he would want. Right. Reminiscent of old Hollywood directing styles, you know, to get genuine reactions. You know, not really trusting the actors to be able to act, I guess, you know, which is kind of strange. Uh, considering that even Hitchcock wouldn't do those types of things. He would just do takes until they got it, you know, right. Famously, I think like Janet Lee or someone was like, well, how do you expect me to do this? And he, he answered, it's called acting, my dear, <laughs> you know? So even he wouldn't do those things, you know, to, to people, you know, he, he, he abused audiences rather than, <laughs> rather than his That's actors. True. I feel like Friedkin is the kind of director that does not, he doesn't want to relinquish any sort of control on his set. You know what I mean? Very similar to like Kubrick, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah, I, I know some of these abuses, but let me let me hear what you got. Yanked violently around in harnesses, both uh, Linda Blair and Ellen Bernstein suffered back injuries. Some of them not maybe permanent, but lasted for decades. Oof. And their painful screams were included in the film. So Bernstein injured her back after landing on her tailbone when she was shot back in that in that room or whatever uh-huh. before the dresser comes towards her. When the stuntman jerked her around using a special effects cable during that scene. And uh, according to the documentary Fear of God, the making of Exorcist, the injury may not have caused the permanent damage. But Bernstein was upset that the shot of her screaming in pain was actually used in the film. She didn't consider that to be like really real acting. Well, it's a little tacky using yeah. the real injury. I mean, that's true, I guess. But, yeah. I mean, if it's effective, then. And then after uh, Father Dyer uh, confirmed to Friedkin that he trusted the director after being asked, do you trust me? <laughs> Friedkin slapped him as hard as he could across the face to generate a deeply solemn reaction for the last rite scene. And this offended a lot of the Catholic crew members on the set. What? Because he's an actual father. <laughs> I don't understand how those two go together. Why? Why would you slap someone for that scene just to look solemn? I, was like, I know. Really? I mean, I'm not. If someone slapped me, I wouldn't look solemn giving the last rites. I'd look like, pissed <laughs> giving the last rites. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he also famously fired blanks from a gun without warning on the set to shock uh, Jason Miller for a take. It was the telephone ringing, right? Mm-hmm. And this sparked a, a major verbal confrontation uh, with. You know, Miller telling Friedkin that he didn't need a gunshot near him to be able to act surprised. Well, I mean, just in case Friedkin <laughs> needed it. Yeah, because you can see him jump and like look kind of annoyed, you know? <laughs> Which, you know, you can jump and look kind of annoyed when you're acting on your own. Yeah, all on your own. So uh, Friedkin told Miller that the, the pea soup would hit him in the chest rather than the face in the projectile vomiting scene, but. Uh, it it fit him hit him right in the in the face yeah right in the kisser <laughs> and then finally uh, the bedroom set had to be refrigerated which I feel like a lot of people know to capture the authentic icy breaths from the actors and right. the exercising scenes uh, but Linda Blair had to be in there and sometimes it would be below thirty degrees and she had to wear just that nightgown uh, says to this day she cannot stand being cold well I mean I can't stand being cold sometimes too and I've never been subjected to that but. I don't know. I feel like I'm making excuses for William Friedkin. It's like PTSD, you know what yeah, I mean? Like I mean that's you walk true. out and it's cold and you're like instantly like f- afraid of the cold versus uncomfortable, you know what I mean? Yeah, I need to be nicer to, to things like that. I just, I mean, I assume like, well, I'm cold and I'm not scared, but I... Well, you could cause ear damage from... From know, a gunshot. People are not prepared for things or like real back damage and, and stuff like that because he wants to cause real pain and get real screams. That's not okay. I guess the moral of the story is, is that if, if William Friedkin asks if you trust him, you say no. And <laughs> I mean, so I really like William Friedkin, as I mentioned earlier. I, I like his work a lot. I have an autographed poster of The Exorcist by him, right? I think a lot of his movies are great. I mean, like Boys in the Band is like classic gay cinema, right? Which he directed. <laughs> um the, the French Connection is just amazing. I really enjoy the movie Bug a lot. He's made some stinkers too, like The Guardian, you know? But I haven't seen probably what people call like his best movie. Every time I turn around, they're saying that Sorcerer is so good, right? So that's something that it's clearly missing from my list. But I, I think that Friedkin is an excellent director, just not as much as like De Palma. I, like you said earlier, it's like hit or miss sometimes with his movies. Yeah. So, But I feel like people need to go and watch his films. 
Also, we've talked about Freak on the podcast before when we did Cruising. So Yeah, that's true. He's no stranger to the film flavor. Epson for lips. <laughs> well, I feel like the saving grace for some of these actors was was the special effects and the special effects teams. Like the stairs were padded with half inch thick rubber uh, to film the death of the character of Karis, obviously, uh, because the house from which he falls was set back slightly from the steps that you can really see in the in the movie. And the film crew constructed an eastward extension with a false front to the house in order to film that scene. And the stuntmen had to tumble down the stairs twice. Oof. <laughs> so Georgetown University students that were actually charged uh, $5 to each to to watch the stunt from the rooftops. Because <laughs> he tumbled it on the whole fucking thing and he did it twice. That's commitment. Mm-hmm. And uh, the makeup by veteran artist uh, Dick Smith did Max von Sydow's face. And he was only 44 years old when he filmed this. And uh, he was made to look exactly like he does later in like Game of Thrones when he's like close to 90 he lo- they looked remarkably similar. I didn't realize this. I thought that he was much good no, job, no. Dick Smith. Yeah. I mean, people always talk about Dick Smith's like puppet creations or like the makeup he did for Linda Blair and stuff like that. I had no idea that Max von Sydow was that young. Yeah, but because of that, he actually was wearing more makeup than Linda Blair. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I just <laughs> wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. But the famous full neck turn by Linda Blair was actually just a simple dummy. But what they uh, really sold it was the they'd rigged it to have that visible breath, you know, frost breath when, right. it, when it's turning its head. Oh, my God. And that's effective, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, so some of the effects part of this movie, I, I agree. It kind of looks like Annabelle now that you look at it. But yeah, it's I mean, that sells it. Some of the effects are great. That that head turning is is fantastic. Um, some of the ways, like some of the more shocking things, are like the crucifix masturbation scene. Like it looks super bloody, and like she gets that blood all over Ellen Burson when she sticks her head down to it. You know what I mean? Like these scenes are really, really off putting, and they look real. Mm-hmm. So, well, that was actually a, a stunt double for Linda Blair, who was actually only fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, so thank God. And uh, and that's also her face that they show with the the makeup and that that you know. So it's, it's interesting. It was like basically three different people to pull off. I wonder whose idea it was role. to have those like uh, subliminal messaging parts to it. Freaking is it? Yeah, you think it was? No, it was freaking. Okay, <laughs> to, like yeah. had that demon face like just flashed and shit. Oh, yeah. And he believes in subliminal because he'd seen a lot of experimental films uh-huh. before this and he really studied it and he wanted to try and do as much of that as possible. And so there's a, like a lot of like the shapes that you use like on the bedpost were kind of phallic. So they would they would cast really phallic shadows and like mm-hmm. a lot of different things like that. And they do flash the face of the demon or have the, the demon, you know, in like the, the reflection of something sometimes for a frame, sometimes for like like half a frame almost. Um, I almost, when you see it on like a Blu-ray, you can see a lot clearer versus like on yeah. streaming. It's harder to see sometimes. That's true. Because of the way they, they do like the progressive, um, uh, stream for frames. It's not like an exact 24 frames per second. So it's harder to see sometimes on streaming, but I'm super ready to see this movie in like 4k. Just, yeah. I want to. Yeah. For, for real. But, um, yeah, we can't talk about the extras without talking about the music. That's right. Yeah. So obviously what's now considered to be the theme from The Exorcist is the piano-based melody uh, called Tubular Bells, which is from a 1973 debut album by English progressive rock musician Mike Oldfield, uh, which became very popular after the film's release, oddly enough, although Oldfield himself was not impressed with the way the work was used. (laughs) 
But the working score by uh, Lalo Schifrin was ultimately rejected by the studio and the director. And some people think it was actually reused later for Amityville Horror. Really? So if you want to ever listen to the uh, original score for The Exorcist, it's pretty close to Amityville Horror from what I'm told. Although that has been denied that it's note for note. Right. So ultimately, Jack Nietzsche and several others were, you know, ultimately composed pieces for the film or the, the work was lifted. Uh, for it, including various classical pieces that Friedkin handpicked himself. Yeah, and I remember him talking about that during that documentary, too. Um, I, I have an aunt who I was at her house when I was like a preteen, you know, mm-hmm. or young teenager, and she was playing Tubular Bells, the album that it comes from, and it went on and on, and I was just like, is this The Exorcist? And she was like, no, 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 it's Tubular Bells. And I was like, really? I mean, like, call it The Exorcist. Let's call it what it is. Yeah, come on. But yeah, I mean, she playing that album is just part of like my family's connection to this movie, right? So my father saw this when he was a teenager. In 1973, he was probably about like 18 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And he went to go see it at the drive-in with some friends and it really frightened him so much that he tells me that he slept in his parents' bed that night. And uh, when I was a kid, like I said before, I was watching horror movies at a very, very young age. And this was the one thing that my father said I could not watch. He I said I had to be 13 years old before I watched The Exorcist. So that's what I got for my 13th birthday was to go rent The Exorcist. I got Bram Stoker's Dracula. For your 13th birthday. <laughs> well, I think it might have been my 12th, actually. My 11th or 12th. I never, I never pushed it when he said I couldn't watch it because he, he told me how affected he was by it. But when I turned 13, I was like, take my ass to the video store. Because the day has come, you know, and I was just like, oh, it's not that scary. But as I get older, I find it to be a lot scarier. Yeah. When I first saw The Exorcist, other than that like, attic moment, I thought it was kind of slow, and yeah. I, you know, because I'd seen other things, you know, I'd seen a lot of like the the more shock, you know, stuff and even things like Poltergeist I'd seen before, or you know, certainly Terminator Aliens and all that stuff. And so you go back and see The Exorcist. It's hard. It's true. You know, and but I also think that I think this movie is just scarier for grownups. You Maybe, know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of like grown up horror in this or like a, a lot of grown up fears or themes mm-hmm. that make it that lend to its like horrificness. Yeah. But speaking of that, do you want to talk about some themes in The Exorcist? Yeah. And there's a lot. But I think this is mostly based on the horror. You know, I, I don't I, I think that they there's not really one major theme or story like we would see in like Babadook or Hereditary oh, yeah. or, you know, some of these others that have come out that are more message movies or, you know, metaphors for specific things like Relic for you know, uh, Alzheimer's mm-hmm. or something like that versus, you know, there's obviously a crisis in faith of Karis. There's science versus faith, a and, lot. which is, which probably one of the biggest ones. Um, I would say also like the horrors of like, you know, coming of age, you know, puberty and things like that. But really there's a lot of kind of like social unconscious in here, like with the, dis- this general discomfort with the, you know, the female body, the female circumstance, you know, and there's a lot of that in here trying to instigate horror, certainly in the 70s and the aftermath of the 60s, as we kind of get closer to that, that reaction to the 60s and 70s and the 80s. And so I feel like there's some of that in the the unconscious of here, but I don't want to get into that because I'm afraid that we'll hurt ourselves <laughs> because we're not academic. We're just, we're not, we're not academics. We, we try and get into these themes and scratch the surface. Yeah. But I do feel like there's some sort of, horror of femininity in here uh, wrapped kind of under the surface, either in the the unconscious of Blatty or very intentionally. I don't know. Well, and I I would agree with that. I would also, I mean, I think that the horrors of puberty, which you mentioned, is like a really big part of this, right? Because you had mentioned like the 50s and the 60s were two different decades completely. And children were growing up faster and doing things at a younger age. You know what I mean? And I think like, you know, 
older populations were sort of horrified by that. And this is like this movie is that incarnate to me. Well, yeah. And we just came off of Halloween where we talked about the final girl thing and like the, the missing white girl syndrome yeah. and like the loss of innocence, the, the, the weight or the, the weight and mantle of innocence that we put on, on girls and women and what they're supposed to be or symbolize and virginity and all of that stuff, like the fucking white dress at a wedding. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of this stuff that is just like placed on the shoulders of, of these women there's a lot of horrific stuff kind of surrounding that uh you know and and i think that like just under the surface is the is the real and reality of being a woman and you know the horror the the horror of the straight white man watching this movie in the, in the 70s was probably really real just like alien was for like facial rape of a man oh yeah you know the sexualization of horror you know there's a, there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in this and it's very nebulous and interesting to to kind of mine but like i said i'm going to hurt myself if i continue <laughs> there are a lot of themes in this movie unintentionally i, I think that i think there's there's a lot going on here and i think you know after multiple watches of this movie it's a lot easier to pick some things out out. I also feel like every time I watch it, I get a little something different out of it. So, I mean, for real, yeah. when you say scratch the surface, even the things that we've talked about, I think we've just scratched the surface. There's a lot that's being said in The Exorcist. Yeah. And if any of you guys listening to this conversation or watching it yourself or thinking about it yourself made you think about anything in particular, you know, you're probably right on and we'd love to hear about it. That's right. Because there are no wrong answers when it comes to subjective art. Yeah. Right. You have any fun facts for me? I do. Just about four. Okay. And most of these, I, I would think you would know, are people that really are, are in tune with this film where it's one of their favorites. I think this is one of your top five, if not your number one horror film of all time. Am I right? No, my number one is Dream uh, Warriors. No, it's uh, Night, Night of Living Dead. Night of Living Dead. And then somewhere in there, it's definitely in your top five. It's definitely in my top five. Yes. Yeah. So I, I would expect someone like you to know some of these. So we'll, so we'll see. Yep. But um, famously actress Mercedes McCambridge, who actually did the voice, but was uncredited, right? And had to, I think like the the Actors Guild had to like sue to get her her name on there or something somehow. Or there, there was like a lot of drama about that. And she she actually caused Linda Blair to kind of lose that supporting actress, you know, thing when everyone kind of figured out that she didn't do the voice. Right. Oh, you know, yeah. And things like that. And so that had something to do with it. There was part of the kind of the, the public conversation about those awards at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie itself had a, had a huge amount of conversation, uh, public conversation about the movie uh, that was actually taking a lot of the media attention away from the Watergate scandal at the time. <laughs> you know, and there's all this stuff going on at the time. Anyway, I digress because this is about Mercedes McCambridge. <laughs> Who provided the voice of the demon and insisted on swallowing raw eggs and chain smoking to alter her vocalizations, right? So the actress who had problems with alcohol abuse in the past wanted to drink whiskey uh, to add to the voice and then the roughness of everything because she knew that it would distort her voice even more and create that crazed kind of state of mind of the character. And as she was giving up sobriety, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process. And at William Friedkin's direction, McCambridge was also bound to a chair with pieces of torn sheet at her neck, arms and wrists and legs and feet to get a more realistic sound of the demon struggle. So that was Friedkin's idea on top of all that other shit. <laughs> and so McCambridge later recalled the experience as one of the horrific rage. And while Friedkin admitted that her performance, as well as the extremes, which the actress put herself through to gain authenticity, terrifies the director to this day and didn't use her again for like the televised version and things like that. Yeah. And I will say that her performance is amazing. Yeah. I mean, like I, the story behind this is, is fascinating to me. I know that she already had sort of a very, she already had sort of a very like 
iconic voice. You know what I mean? Like she, she had won Academy Awards before this. She'd won a supporting actress role. Right. Actually. For giant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, I mean, she was, she was a well-known actress. Um, but the, the more I learned about her as my life went on, it's just fascinating. She's a fascinating woman. And I love, love this performance. If they gave awards for like voiceover work, like for sure, she'd be like, in the annals of history that's been argued for years and years they need to they need need to have an award for that they need to have like a choreography award both for like dancing and fighting i will die on this hill Mm -hmm. so my next one according to william friedkin the subliminal shots of the white-faced demon are actually rejected makeup tests for reagan's possessed appearance by the set double i did know that (laughs) (laughs) thank god (laughs) so for my last one Due to the death threats against Linda Blair from religious zealots who believe the film glorified Satan, Warner Brothers had bodyguards protecting her for a full six months after the film's release. I had no idea about that one. Yay! I mean, (laughs) really? People? Yeah. No, we hear about that shit today. I mean, come on. I mean, but she didn't write the movie. She didn't make the movie. She was just, I mean, you know what? Zealotry? No. You need to stop anyway. Yeah, there's still people today that go up to like actors and like, why'd you leave or cheat on this person? I'm like, you know, like pull yourself to fucking gather. Please. I know. <laughs> Let me tell you about something called fiction. <laughs> it's a magical land. Yeah. Well, those were fun. I really enjoyed that last one. Cause now I feel so bad for Linda Blair. <laughs> uh, we have a series of questions to ask about the exorcist. Like we do about every movie we talk about. And we're going to start with is the exorcist a horror movie. Well, yes. <laughs> I would say yes, but I have talked to many people who say no for the reasons that we talked about. I mean, like, as well, a child. Their mother sucks cats in hell. I, <laughs> Stick it up your ass. <laughs> Stick a cock in your ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. <laughs> Uh, I mean, a lot of people watch this movie and say they're too bored to be scared or they didn't find it shocking, you know. And to those people, I say, go watch it again. I mean, like, really, it's a horror movie. It's a scary movie to me. Well, yeah. So, I mean, my God, there's split pea soup in that. Just get over yourselves. (laughs) Were you scared while watching The Exorcist? Yeah. Yeah, sure. The first time was like the more of the junk scares. And then later it was like kind of the existential stuff. That kind of creeped me out, the creeping dread. So, yeah, it's scary. I think this movie is incredibly scary. Like, I mean, I get scared watching a lot of things. I get scared watching McDonald's commercials sometimes. Let's be real. But, I mean, like, this movie frightens me every time that I watch it. I'm shocked every time I watch it, even though I know exactly what's going to happen. Even today, the the whole, like... That whole thing is yeah, it's insane. Like it's hard to watch, and mm-hmm. it's it's just like I'm shocked because not only is like I'm shocked because it's a '70s movie, but even they haven't done anything like that since with a child. Like they haven't even tried. They haven't come close to it. No, this movie is will always be shocking for that. You know what I mean? I think they they took a lot of risks. They made a lot of choices when making this movie. Yeah, but what's interesting is like the first time, like I said, like the scares were different for me. And yeah. I don't think that shocked me the first time I saw it. I was just like, whatever. You know, but now that I'm an adult and I, I see a child doing that, I'm just like, holy crap. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that your views of this movie change over time. And I, I have seen this movie well over 10 times. I, I love well, I it. I probably didn't understand what trauma was. And then I, yeah. I saw that mother going through that, you know, having to put her face in her kids, you know, business, you know, yeah. and, and everything. And I'm just like, that's drama. I mean, or she like grabs that like doctor's nuts or whatever. I mean, like there's lots of things that still shock me in this movie that because it's a child doing it. Right. And immediately the my hands go, Christ, come pass you stick it up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like clutching my pearls and shit when I watch this <laughs> and I know exactly what's going to be said and what's going to happen, but it's just yeah, effectively shocking, shockingly adult, time. you know, yes. and, and yet nothing really much is happening on the screen other than those lines and yeah. the delivery and what they're doing you know it's just it's just a little bit of fake blood in some lines and it's the most shocking shit in any horror movie I mean, essentially I, I agree i completely agree except for the the torture porn stuff even that i find less shocking than yeah, things that happen in the exorcist it's the contrast it's yeah. the contrast that pulls it off and that's filmmaking that's cinema <sighs> cinema so yes it's a horror movie <laughs> moving on yes <laughs> that's a long-winded way of saying yes <laughs> out of five stars what would you rate the exorcist i rated it a high four okay i give it just five stars i think that it is a perfect movie like there are some times that i'll watch it and be like you know sometimes i have a problem with its length or its pacing yeah freaking can, can be a little masturbatory but there's so many moments of brilliance in here like if i was still doing points i would i would certainly give it a 4.5 yeah i i think it's a five-star movie for me especially on this particular rewatch i really enjoyed it a lot and i just came away thinking my god this is a perfect piece of film yeah so all right so finally who's the hottest guy in the exorcist You'd think I'd be prepared for this question every time. I know. You always look surprised. Like, you forgot it's coming. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Father Karras, I guess. Jason Miller for me, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he looks like his mother a little bit too much. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, why you do this to me, Demi? I'm I mean, strangest boner right now. <laughs> He's supposed to be a boxer too, and he kind of has that look about him. But he looks he looks cute and sad at the same time. Like I want to go give him a hug. You know? I'm just like, oh, don't be sad. Let's go hold hands about it. As Carrie Fisher said to Mark Hamill, that freshly punched look is gonna get you pretty far in life. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jason Miller's pretty hot in this movie. (laughs) Maybe it was that Rembrandt lighting though. Who knows? Either way, he's my choice. Freshly punched. (laughs) I want probably my freak him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> go shoot a gun at someone see what they look like do you trust me never say yes i'm telling you do not say yes to friedkin any answer to any question he asks should be no and never hold his beer <laughs> you can't scare me hold my beer <laughs> well i think that just about wraps up our conversation on the exorcist and like always we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it you can find us on social media at the film flamers on twitter facebook or instagram you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or you can let Jesus fuck you by calling 972-666-7733. Oh, we're sucking cocks in hell. <laughs> I can't say things from this movie. I know we're quoting the movie, but it still feels so wrong. <laughs> We're not gonna, people are going to stop listening to our podcast right after this episode. Lick us! Lick us! <laughs> the power of Christ compels you. To call us. 
Jenny. <laughs> what an excellent day for a voicemail. <laughs> if you can't get enough of it the would bring players. us closer together. <laughs> you and she. You and us. <laughs> I fucking love this. Just, the way you said that just reminded me of Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Which I still need to say. <clears throat> if you can't get enough of the Film Flamers, head over to patreon.com slash the Film Flamers to find all of our bonus content, including this month, where I'm sure we're going to be talking about something Exorcist related. Right. Maybe those prequels. One or two of them. Maybe those pesky prequels. Mm. Mm. Dominion and Beginning. That's what they're called. Yeah. <laughs> But we have more content coming out for you on the main feed. So next week, we're going to be talking about Exorcist 2, The Heretic. That's right. Briefly. Briefly. And then The Exorcist 3. No subtitle. Longer. (laughs) (laughs) More longer. (laughs) But we have one more surprise for you this month, and that is we have some new merch. (gasps) We do. We have a Sigourney fucking Weaver t-shirt. That's right. It is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'll be wearing it every day, and I know that you all want to get one. So head to our website, filmflamers.com, and click on the Visit Our Store button. You can see all that. There's tons of new merch, actually. So go check it out and send us a picture of you wearing it. That's right. We've got the new logo. We've also got a Christmas sweater. Yay, I'm so excited for Christmas now. We do. Well, Chris... I think it's a lovely night for an exorcism. Stick your cock up your ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. I will. That <laughs> <laughs> was good, though. Now I really want to go off and have some... Sweet, sweet dreams. dreams. Stick it up your ass. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know what they did? Your cunting podcasters? Recorded that episode. 